I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Amen. That's the spirit of a Christian. If that's too divisive and not politically correct to use the word hate, then someone has departed from the word of God. But that's what we believe. And so we want to be thankful for that little verse. And I hope all of your children will learn it soon if they don't already know it. Brethren, I have no time to retrace the steps that we took this morning in working our way through an extensive study that I wanted to accomplish in just two sermons. I'm going to be selective this evening so that we're not here too long, and the rest of it's going to be available online immediately tomorrow morning, where you can go pull off six pages, which means six hours of preaching that's not going to be done, because we'll move on next Sunday by the grace of God. I still believe that what I taught last Sunday is more important than what I'm teaching this Sunday. Last Sunday is your personal responsibility to be a spiritually minded Christian and to avoid that pitfall of being a carnally minded Christian, which is so prevalent today in Christian circles. But tonight and today, we're looking at how corporately, as a church, we can depart also from the Word of God And what I've called today, we can join those who are participating in contemporary Christianity. And we define contemporary Christianity as the constant modification of New Testament religion in order to attract the unregenerate, carnal Christians, please the flesh, and be acceptable to the world. Remember, one-third of the earth says they're Christian. Two billion claim to be Christians, and yet we look and we see no godliness or truth in the earth. Hardly at all. Something's wrong somewhere, and we saw the prophecies. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, perilous times were coming. Timothy, perilous times. And it's not a conspiracy of government. It's not a United Nations one world empire. The perilous times are carnal Christianity, men having a form of godliness, but denying the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to dictate the terms of their lives. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul warned again in a prophecy that a time was going to come, and he was afraid for the Corinthians, that teachers would arise that would be preaching another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit, and they were so weak they might well bear with those teachers. And he was afraid of that. We then came to Second Timothy chapter 4, where Paul said the time would come when men would no longer endure sound doctrine. And sometimes I take enduring. It takes endurance to sit here. But the Bible warns us that that's what it, how it's supposed to be done. Preach the word and to be instant in season and out of season because the time would come when men wouldn't want that, but they would heap to themselves teachers. And oh, there's so many teachers today for their itching ears. And they would be turned from the truth unto fables. And all of this is in Christian circles. Second Timothy 3 and 4 is not a warning to Timothy of how the world's going to get worse. It's a warning to Timothy of how Christianity is going to get worse until there is a form of godliness without the power thereof where they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, 
fulfilling all of those lusts of the flesh of 2 Timothy chapter 3, leading captive silly women in an effeminate form of religion, with false teachers ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And we can be protected from that by the cure. And it's the Word of God. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which you know so well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that is right smack dab in the middle of those two prophecies. That's the cure. It's the Word of God. Now, we looked at a long string of about a hundred, and I just gave you the tip of the iceberg, innovations, inventions, and devices that men have added to New Testament religion to attract the unregenerate, keep the carnal Christians happy, please the flesh, and be acceptable to the world. All sorts of inventions that they stick into the church of Jesus Christ in order to be compatible with our world. But God hasn't called us to be compatible. He's called us to be transformed rather than conformed. And so we just want to be that way by following His Word. And we don't want to do it in arrogance. We don't want to do it in pride. We want to do it in faith toward the Lord to please Him because we're so thankful that He saved us and called us out of this world and He has a place prepared for us. And we should be waiting for His Son Jesus from heaven. I wanted to show you some of the heresies that bring inventions in to the church of Jesus Christ. The first one I gave you is, and it was from this morning, they're numbers driven. As soon as you accept the law of large numbers at all, you are are assuming a heresy that will lead you into other problems. Large numbers statistically convince people that they're part of the truth because they're meeting in a building with a large crowd. We know from the testimony of Scripture that the truth has always been held by a very small minority. In fact, the prophet Isaiah would say, if the Lord of Sabbath had not left us a very small remnant, the nation of Israel, which was his chosen people, would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's always chosen a very small remnant to be his people. We were glad that Noah and his family were saved in the ark. The majority certainly wasn't right in that case. And we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ did leave 120 in Acts chapter 1 that were still meeting together in his name. But the majority of men, even though they take the name of Jesus, it's another Jesus. It's not the Lord Jesus Christ of heaven. And that is hard for many people to hear that, but that's what the apostle warned about to a Christian church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Those of you who've been to an Amway meeting know exactly what I'm talking about with the law of large numbers. You get 5,000 people together of 55 different faiths and have them all sing the doxology and make the pledge to the flag, and you will come away with a blessing, but it will not be a blessing of the Spirit of God. It's a blessing of mass crowd psychology, and the large movements in our country claiming the name of Christ use it to their benefit. Jesus never used it. And his followers have never used it because the truth has never had such a large following. Hitler used it. Hitler used it well. Those of you who have seen any films from World War II and have seen 500,000 to a million men in the fields of Nuremberg with large banners around them having listened to music for a couple of hours and standing there in very neat formations and working that those Germans into a frenzy by their music and by preparatory speeches, and then have Adolf Hitler, a very fiery orator, take the podium, those men would have run through a wall for him. 
And so they will in large crusades of all these different faiths that get together because of the mass psychology of numbers. We reject it all. We're going to measure things by the Word of God. Don't come to me and tell me I went to a promise keeper's meeting and got a blessing because I'm going to believe you. You did get a blessing. And I'm using that word blessing with little quotation marks around it. But you weren't blessed by the Spirit of God. He doesn't operate in such meetings. Because that's a compromising organization designed to overthrow the divisiveness of the Word of God in order to unite men together, which is contrary to Scripture. Numbers, they're numbers driven. We can't be numbers driven. We're not going to be. We're not going to think that way. And whenever you get around larger numbers, be on the lookout for that psychological effect that you're going to see. Most churches are entertainment driven. You'll find special music, dramas, poems, plays, interpretive dance, storytelling, and everything in the worship service. You know, you look at some of these church services and you say, poor Paul, he missed the boat by not having seen all the creative minds that the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries would bring along to enhance the gospel. But we're going to be simple enough, the simplicity of the gospel, to believe that Paul had it all. And here's why we're going to believe it. The scriptures are given by the inspiration of God that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That means you give me a God-called man and put in his hands the God-inspired scriptures and you don't need anything more. Not one thing more. Not ever not in the 20th century or the 21st century, because you have got everything God put together for perfection. Amen. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. When we see a church driven by entertainment, we see the fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3 and 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. They will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, turn from the truth to a fable, They want to be pleased, so they're entertainment-driven. Remember, the apostle had just said in chapter 3, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. So it shouldn't surprise us. We want to be on the lookout for that because the apostle warned us, it's perilous times when men love pleasure. It's a perilous time, and we can never let it sneak into the church. You give the people in a church a religious, sensual experience without any commitment, they'll love it. That church will grow by leaps and bounds. You entertain them with a sensual, overtly religious experience. Don't require anything out of them. That church is going to grow. Can't you understand why? They can go and feel good religiously. They aren't committed. They're going to invite their friends and neighbors. They're going to take their family members. That church will grow. But give us a church where the Apostle Paul preaches to midnight. A man falls out of the window and they take him up dead and he raises him from the dead and then preaches till daybreak. That church is not going to grow very fast. And I'm going to quit before daybreak. (laughs) I promise. I want to look at another heresy that comes in and it's the smooth talkers. Today we have a brand of preacher that's effeminate, elegant, refined, and politically correct. God never called such men. Not one. Ever. 
God never called an elegant, refined man to preach his gospel because his gospel is not elegant or refined. His gospel is a picture of the Son of God hanging on a cross with flies buzzing around drying blood that was dripping from his wounds where he died to suffer the penalty for an eternal damnation in hell for the sins of his people. It's not a pretty religion. And you don't get Robert Schuler's preaching it. Kenneth Copeland doesn't know it. Those men present an effeminate brand of Christianity of another Jesus and another spirit. And we are going to be opposed to it. They're the smooth talkers. Look at Isaiah chapter 30. I probably had more personal pleasure on this particular point than on any of the others. As far as the heresies that bring in contemporary Christianity into churches. Because Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are filled with warnings about false prophets and their methods. And I don't have time. But I want to look at Isaiah chapter 30, and we'll start at verse 8. Now go. Write it before them in a table. This is the judgment of God that Isaiah is to write. And note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Aren't you thankful he wrote it? You've still got it. You're part of the ever. It's to be forever and ever, and you've got it in your hands. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, that's their preachers, their prophets, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get you out of the way, Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Get rid of that sovereign God of the Bible. That's what the modern preacher does today. Get rid of the, the sovereign God of the Bible and preach to us smooth things. Preach to us lies. We don't care. Just make us feel good. And Robert Schuller does it. If you've ever seen him on television, he just wants to tell you, you are the best looking people I've ever seen. You are the most wonderful, holy Christians I've ever seen. And he just goes on and on like that, and that's a sermon. Dale Carnegie, Zig Ziglar all over again, telling you how wonderful you are and how great you are, and that you ought to believe that about yourself. And along would come John the Baptist and say, bring forth fruits, therefore meet for repentance. And if you don't repent, God can raise up children out of these stones. Right. Different kind of a religion, different kind of preaching, isn't it? Very different. Jesus and John were very different in their days. When Jesus would finish preaching Matthew chapter 7, they think that's his gentlest sermon of all, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It says that all the people were astonished. Why were they so astonished at the message of Jesus Christ? Because of the way he interpreted the law of Moses? No. Because he spake as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. All the seminary trained preachers of his day didn't know how to preach either. They were politically correct, refined, elegant, with no authority. Along came Jesus Christ and just blasted away in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and they were astonished. And brethren, if you think six, 5, 6, and 7 are tough, go read 23, Amen. where Jesus took apart those Pharisees and see what kind of authority he spake with. And he gave that authority to his apostles, and they gave it to ministers after them. 
and that's been passed, and a true preacher of Jesus Christ is not going to be refined, effeminate, or elegant. They're not going to be smooth talkers. They're going to blast away on the gospel trumpet and show you your sins and lay forth the word of God as it should be. Paul said the time would come when they wouldn't endure sound doctrine, and we've got that day here today. I want to go to the next heresy that brings in contemporary Christianity, and it's called every, I've I've called it this. It's every man ministries. Everybody needs a ministry. This is the idea that everyone has a ministry of great importance. And if we can get all of you so involved in your ministry, then you won't think too much about the Word of God or why the church is doing certain things that it is, because you're out fulfilling your ministry. That's very flattering. Everyone wishes they had a ministry, and here come these churches that want to give everyone a ministry. It's like our educational system. It's based on mutual flattery. I'll flatter you if you'll pay the tuition. That's how it takes 13 years to give everyone a fifth-grade education. And so it is in churches. If you'll flatter everyone with a ministry, they'll want to participate because in this church, they get a ministry. And so we have contemporary Christianity where we've got youth ministers, music ministers, Christian artists, ladies to jails, and so forth, when there isn't even a phrase of that in the New Testament. A minister of music, what's his calling? Who called him? How does he get ordained? And what, what is he fulfilling? What calling is he fulfilling in the Bible? Because when I look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have two offices of the New Testament church. We have a bishop and a deacon. Which one is it? It's additions, brethren. It's one of the additions. Does everyone have a ministry? The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he would say, are all teachers? Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Those are what we call rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that you don't need to write the answer in because it is so obvious. And the obvious answer to 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31 is that there's only a few gifts given in the church. But you know what? And a brother said this to me this morning after the service. Why can't God's saints be content being kings and priests? Amen. Why do they need a ministry? A ministry, if it's done right, is a lot of hard work and a pain. The Apostle Paul, after listing all the physical pain he went through in his life, he said, on top of that, I have the care of the churches. Why do you want a ministry? You don't have one anyway, according to the testimony of the Word of God, except those that God raises up to either be a bishop or a deacon. That's a ministry in the New Testament church. That's an office. Why can't we be happy being kings and priests? A royal priesthood, all of you, men and women included, children also, that believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go to God Almighty. I am that I am in the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and there lay a sacrifice by the confession of your sins called the blood of Jesus and atone for your sins by a, in a practical way and receive forgiveness. Amen. And you're a king because the Lord Jesus Christ is your brother and he's a king. Right. That ought to be enough. But it's not today. You know, when I look, when I think of these churches that make everyone happy by giving them a ministry, I think of Korah, who stood up against Moses and said, listen, buddy, we're as holy as you are. Why can't we have your position and some of your authority? 
And Moses, the meekest man in the face of the earth, who never wanted his job in the first place and tried desperately to stay in the backside of the desert, didn't want to go to Egypt, didn't want to lead those rebellious people. God said, Moses, I'll take care of them. Get the congregation to stand back. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed those men who wanted the ministry of Moses. Let it be a warning to all of us to make sure that we are only fulfilling what God called us to do, not what some man is tempting us to do. We find in other churches that they have a new brand of Christianity not known in the New Testament by creating a salvation business machine. They believe that the Great Commission is given to New Testament churches. I'm thankful for the Great Commission, but do you know what I'm more thankful for? I'm thankful that God prepared chosen men and equipped them to fulfill it, and He fulfilled the Great Commission before 70 A.D., The point's been proven before by 20 different proofs, but let's just look at a couple to remind ourselves. First of all, the Great Commission was only given to the apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Only given to the apostles. Second of all, when we go to Mark and we look at the context after it was given, do you know what the Bible says? They went and did it. Then we come over to Colossians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul said that it was already fulfilled before he died. Colossians chapter 1, I'll just read verse 23. It's in verse 6 also. Colossians 1.23, he said to the Colossian saints, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Jesus told his apostles, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Paul right here says the gospel had already been preached to every creature under heaven. That's so amazing to most people. I mean, the way I was raised in a GARBC Baptist church and attending Bob Jones University, the Great Commission is a gigantic club. It's a two-handed club to beat money and salvation business out of church members and students. Not only were the apostles prepared for it, they could speak in any language they needed to. Whenever they arrived in town, they could speak in any language. They could raise the dead, heal the sick, speak in those foreign languages without going to language school. They didn't go to deputation work either. They could take up serpents. They could drink poison. Nothing would happen. And when they were done preaching in this city, they would appear in this city without using the airlines. Remember when Philip finished baptizing the eunuch, he was immediately in another city preaching the gospel there. Now, when you can travel like that, and you don't have to learn languages, and you can raise the dead to get people's attention, do you know how easy it is to preach the gospel to every creature? They did it. Paul said they did it. No one wants to believe that because it would take away their club, and all of a sudden their church would have to get serious about living New Testament spiritual lives. Like being a good father, being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good mother, being a good employee, being a good master, and loving the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. Instead of being so busy trying to save souls. Do you know what's most amazing? Romans, Corinthians, the little epistles, all the epistles. Not one verse. Not one verse about any of those church members even trying in some quasi-way to fulfill the Great Commission. Not one verse. Because it was an apostolic job given to men specially prepared. 
But when a church comes along and gets distracted from its New Testament focus, and what's its New Testament focus? To turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for His Son Jesus from heaven. When they get turned away from that focus and get turned on saving souls, which isn't given to them in any New Testament epistle, they're distracted. And so we have contemporary Christianity win the lost at any cost. The end justifies the means. Do whatever you've got to to get them in. And they've done that. You know, now we've got Jesus Rocks concerts. As long as you're getting them there and they're hearing the gospel, you want to feel that you're doing the Lord's work. But where do we find that in the New Testament, brethren? Where do we find that? You know, when we look into the New Testament, we see perfecting holiness in the fear of God as our responsibility. Amen. That's what God's called us to do. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God, it will take you all of your life yep. to the end of your life to do that imperfectly. Another heresy, dual citizenship. There's churches in this city that love to, they don't call it this, these are my words. Dual citizenship, that means you can be citizens in the kingdom of heaven and citizens of this world. But you know what, we don't read any saints doing that in the Bible. Because Jesus said, who is their king, and if we're his citizens, he says this about it. No man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold the one and despise the other. Cannot serve God and mammon. It's every man's dream to be a rich, successful Christian businessman. If God makes you that, that's one thing. But to desire that is to run right into the teeth of 1 Timothy chapter 6, that the love of money, and the love of money is the root of all evil, and the desire to be rich leads men into destructive problems in their lives. The deceitfulness of riches is what chokes out the word of God, Jesus said in Matthew 13. And he said it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But there are churches that cater to that, where you can rub rub shoulders with the movers and shakers of Greenville all while you're having a form of godliness so that you can do both and feel good about your covetousness and your excessive ambition that the Bible doesn't justify. We don't want that here. There's personality cults where we have the careful promotion and public adoration of a single person. You know, Corinth had problems with personality followings. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. Well, I've got the most eloquent one of all. I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm spiritual. I'm of Jesus. And so you've got four sections of the church at Corinth fighting with one another and being divisive because they were following a man instead of the Word of God. The, the mass media that we have today, all of it, printed, internet, television, radio, tapes, video cassettes, all of that media we have make personality cults so much easier than ever before. I mean, ever before, how could you even be known very widely except by the media that we have today. You know, Jesus told those that he was teaching in Matthew chapter 23 to reject the Pharisees and to call none of them rabbi, master, or father on earth. They weren't to be following any of them. The popes are condemned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as the man of sin. And Diotrephes is condemned in 3 John as one loving to have the preeminence. And John just blasts them. 
in third John, in the, in the little epistle of third John. Personality cults. It's so much easier to trust Brother Bill, that is Gothard, than it is to trust your local pastor, because after all, he's such a great man. But see, God never called great men. God called fishermen and other men that were sinners saved by grace to preach his gospel. And it's not to be a personality cult. The minute that you imbibe that at all, you're going to be led into other heresies because of that. And we end up with contemporary Christianity where we're following a man rather than the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of this church. There's the cathedral complex. You see that everywhere. When you drive past something, you say, what in the world do they spend all that money for? And you know, most of those churches claim they believe in saving souls. But if the current rate is $76.12 to save a soul, why'd they build such an incredibly complex facility to meet in and to play basketball in as they do? But you build a big enough, you build a big enough cathedral and you make it attractive enough And you get people in there and impress them enough. The Catholics knew this. Have you ever seen pictures of those cathedrals that were made in Europe 600 years ago, 800 years ago, a 1,000 years ago, which seemed like they had no ceiling. It was so high. And the poor little people would be so impressed. They had to believe the man up front. Because after all, how could you have something this impressive if it wasn't the truth? There was nothing else around like it. Why, it couldn't be the Baptists. They're meeting out in the woods. <laughs> the cathedral complex. The Apostle Paul ran into it in Acts chapter 17 when he ran into the Athenians right. of Athens. And he condemned them and he said, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands and he doesn't need anything from you. And we've already seen today that the New Testament religion is spiritual and he's looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. We've got churches with a political agenda. You know, as a boy growing up, it was the 20th century Reformation hour with Carl McIntyre. You couldn't tell if it was Christian or political because it was both. And as soon as you, as soon as you take on a political agenda, the apostle never had one. Why didn't the apostle hold demonstrations all over the Roman Empire in order to demand religious freedom for the saints of the New Testament churches? I mean, doesn't that sound noble and legitimate? Why didn't he do that? After all, he had God on his side. After all, he could mail some handkerchiefs around and heal the sick. Why didn't he demonstrate for freedom of religion? Because the churches of Jesus Christ are not involved in that conflict. Our conflict is spiritually wrestled, not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against Washington, D.C. We wrestle against Satan and spiritual wickedness in high places, but it's after your soul now and will be tomorrow. And churches get distracted with these political agendas, and therefore they leave off what we're supposed to be doing, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Over and over it happens. Then we run into a church with an activity calendar. They're going to create and promote so many activities for all ages that they'll all be too busy to think about, are we doing what God wants us to do? These are the people that when they visit a church, the first question is, not, can I see a confession of faith? Not, what do you believe? Not, what Bible version do you use? But, what kind of youth program do you have? Well, you know what? The only youth, you know what the youth program I find in the New Testament is? If we're simply to go by the New Testament... David said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. 
What's the youth program of the New Testament? Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Right. You say, you're Neanderthal. Call me what you wish. I want to be scriptural, and I want you to be scriptural, right. and that's why I say it that way. What is the New Testament youth program? Fathers training their children. Well, how does the father know enough to train his children? He better be sitting in a church where he's being preached the gospel. Amen. Right. And the word of God, boldly and plainly, and making him a man, instead of listening to one's refined, elegant, effeminate man who couldn't train his sons, and his son wouldn't respect him enough to ever listen. You say, well, what if the father isn't converted? Then you find women like Lois and Eunice who are able to take a young boy like Timothy and teach him the word of God so that he's able to be the most trusted man that the Apostle Paul had in his ministry. It's the activity calendar. Listen, if a church has enough after-school programs, the parents can fully quit child training. They send them off to the daycare for six and a half hours every day, and then if the church will take them up after that with activities every night, the parents don't have to do anything. Just get them up in the morning and give them some Rice Krispies and put them to bed at night with a Rice Krispies treat, and they've done their job. It's incredible, and they call it Christianity. It's contemporary Christianity. It's not the Word of God. Right. In the Word of God, we've got a book called Proverbs that is jam-packed full of wisdom that a father should be teaching his sons. Amen. And that's how sons are trained. That's the youth program of the New Testament. Remember, I said I was going to be selective. Then we come across the body of Christ people. The body of Christ people reason like this. Since we're all going to heaven anyway, does it really matter what we believe? They like to say this. Those Baptists are going to be real surprised when they see us Catholics and Mormons in heaven. You know what I can say to that? I will be very surprised. And so should you be. But they like to ridicule us that way because we're divisive and we want to take a stand on the Word of God. These body of Christ, this body of Christ thinking works something like this. You've got 15,000 people in a basketball stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana called Promise Keepers. And the speaker up front says, Hey, Promise Keepers, can you all feel the Spirit here tonight? Let's have the Lord's Supper. And so they have the Lord's Supper with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, every form of baptism for the living and the dead. And call it the Lord's Supper. That's because we're all in the body of Christ, so why should we be divided? Let's all unite and hold hands and sing, Blessed be the tie that binds. Brethren, that is contemporary Christianity. That is not what the Word of God teaches. That is not what Paul taught, and Paul taught against that. Amen. Paul taught that we are to preach the Word of God, and that if any man or an angel from heaven preaches anything different than he preached, let him be accursed. Amen. Well, there's a whole list here. I think you'll have some entertainment and some profit reading them if you check out the outline. But how about the fantastic feelings group of people? They have churches that are based on the fantastic feelings. If we do enough to make them feel good, they'll not question the agenda. It's a church that practices a full-blown menu when you get there for a service so that you're not going to question what that church is doing or believing because you have such a great feeling. Have you ever met one of those people at work? They come in on Monday or Tuesday 
and say, I got such a blessing yesterday at our church service. And you're, you're taken back and you're, you're glad to see that kind of enthusiasm for a church. And so you say, well, what did the pastor preach on? And all of a sudden the eyes glaze over, the face goes white, and they can't remember because all they got out of it was a feeling of a so-called blessing when in fact, when you assemble in a New Testament church, it is to put your understanding to work and learn something. That's what we started off with this evening from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You're to be taught something and learn. We're to be growing in knowledge and wisdom. And yet they come away with a great feeling. They call it a blessing. But where is that in the Bible? To come away from a sermon and say, I feel good. Or wasn't that wonderful, but be unable to repeat anything they heard. It's the fantastic feeling program. It's like a Zig Ziglar seminar or a Dale Carnegie success seminar. It doesn't take a lot of genius to arrange music, testimonies, awards, speeches to fuel feelings. And they're very good at it. They learn it by what works and what doesn't work. And whatever works, they'll do it whether it's right or wrong. And brethren, Satan is willing to assist such men at all times with his own spirits to give people a great sense of joy when they leave a service that wasn't following the truth. Remember, Paul said that. I fear, Paul said, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus ye might well bear with him. He knew that Satan was behind him, and he said, don't marvel at what I just told you, because Satan himself can be transformed into an angel of light. It's no wonder, then, that he's able to take men and make them look like ministers of righteousness, when, in fact, they are deceitful workers, false apostles. That's all in 2 Corinthians 11. That's the warning. That's what we're trying to learn and be reminded of today that will not move away from our confidence in the Word of God. Brethren, then there's the Japanese management style of church, and that's where we get rid of the ministry. It's like the Quakers and the Plymouth Brethren. Let's all sit around and share. Listen, if we were all to sit around and share tonight, and there were 50 of you that shared, do you know how many ideas we'd get? 50. What makes the man of God perfect? Or what makes a church fully equipped to learn God's Word? It's to have a man called of God with God's inspired Scriptures. And when you combine those two things, it works. But we've got those who want to get rid of authority. Jesus left authority in His churches for teaching. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews, 1 Timothy 5, Submit yourselves unto them that have the rule over you, that's rule, who have spoken unto you the Word of God, that's teaching. Same people. Then we've got the firewalkers. You know, there's one of those on, uh, let's see, it's Bird, is it Birdland Drive in this city? It's there behind Haywood Mall. It's the World Redemption Outreach Center. You can see them on TV. You can go and visit. I call them the firewalkers. If you pick the right beat, play it loud enough and play it long enough, you can get people to be able to walk on hot coals. They do that in Africa, and the Aborigines do it in Australia. Now, Israel knew that way back in the days of Moses. When Moses and Joshua were up getting the Ten Commandments and they were on their way back down, the people got a little bored with Moses being gone. 
And so they got themselves together a rock band, formed a molten calf, and began fornicating around this golden calf, listening to wild music, so that when they came down from the mountain, Joshua said, Moses, it sounds like the sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, no, it doesn't sound like war to me. They're singing and dancing down there. And then when they got into sight, they saw the people dancing to their shame because they were all naked. There was a great modern 21st century party going on, and they had music and dancing and singing going on around it. And it's the same thing today. And they do it in these contemporary churches where they have jam sessions with electric guitars and other instruments that will that will stimulate your base instincts and your physical reaction until anything can happen. Listen, you'd speak in tongues if you were there, and you stayed there long enough, and they had the volume loud enough. God never did that. Do you know what he? Do you know what the Lord thinks in the New Testament of a instrument that makes that doesn't have life that gives sounds? It's worthless in the New Testament church. Because in the New Testament church, what we do is what is good to the use of edifying. You say, but music moves me. That's why they use it. It moves you. But we don't want to be moved by the music. We want to be moved by the Spirit of God. And don't get the two confused. They're not the same thing. You say, well, we sing, we're commanded to sing. Well, sometimes when we sing, I am moved by the singing. There's no instrumentation. You're singing words, and I pray to God. That's why we prayed this evening, and that's what I'm always praying for, that you come to these assemblies in the Spirit of God, ready for the Spirit of God to move you, and we're singing words to our understanding, which is what the Spirit operates with. I hope that you're being moved as we sing about Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. But these firewalkers spend so much money on their sound systems and jamming sessions, they can drive you stark crazy in the name of religion. The New Testament is silent about instrumental music. It says to sing. And you know what? When the Bible says sing, it means sing, not play. You want playing? You were born 2,000 years too late. You can go back into the Old Testament where it was all sensual. You heard the musical instruments, you saw the fire, you heard the tinkling bells, you heard the bleeding sheep as their throats were cut, you smelled the smell of the sacrifices. It was all sensual. In the New Testament, it is spiritual, very, very different. We want to keep it that way, brethren. There's churches that are set up and that evolve into contemporary Christian churches that Paul warns us against with what I call the silent suggestion. The silent suggestion is this. Since God's been silent on so many things about his public worship, doesn't that mean we can do what we want? How far do you want to run with that reasoning? Since he didn't say that we couldn't use bananas and distilled water at the Lord's Supper, should we try it? I mentioned that this morning. If God didn't specifically prohibit it, does that give us the license to do whatever we want? God considers his word a closed system. It's complete. Therefore, when he commands us to do something, that's what we're supposed to do. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. That's also Matthew 28 and verse 20, where the apostles were to teach them to observe all things 
whatsoever I have commanded you. That means you can't add to it and you can't take away from it. It's all things, but it was whatsoever Jesus commanded. Right. When I hear anyone talking that way, whenever I hear that, but he didn't say you couldn't have a piano. Do you know what I'm, I think of? I think of Nadab and Abihu. He didn't say they couldn't offer strange fire. All he said was, offer it this way. And Nadab and Abihu went to the right church. They went to worship the right God. They were the sons of Aaron. Right. But they tampered with the incense and the fire that they offered before God in some small way. It had to be small. They were at the right place. They were the right men with the right God. But the Lord sent it a fire and burned them up. And his word came down to Aaron, don't you dare grieve for them. That's pretty hard. Two of your sons get burned up by the Lord and you can't even have a funeral for them. That means do exactly what God said. Do you know how important it is? And they know this story in all these contemporary churches, but they forget it conveniently. God told Moses, speak to the rock. When God says speak to the rock, what does he mean? He didn't say he couldn't hit it. Did God say Moses couldn't hit the rock? Not expressly, but it's always implied. Because God's word is a closed system. When God commands something, he wants it to be done that way. And if you alter it at all, you're wrong. And Moses was wrong. Moses took the rod. And it's a horrible passage there. I read it again just this afternoon. It says he smote the the rock twice. And you know, when you think about that, you know what happened, don't you? He smote the rock once and nothing happened. And that was the Lord's. And I'm going to go ahead and take from Elijah a still small voice telling Moses he had just made a big one. And then he smote the rock again and water came out. And you know, many people would say, look, at he got the right results. No, that the water coming out of the rock wasn't the result. The result was, Moses, you'll never touch Canaan. The most faithful man of the Old Testament, in God's opinion, Hebrews chapter 3, faithful in all his house, and one day, God said, speak to the rock. Moses smote it. He never sees Canaan. That's how specific the Bible is. And that's how it's a closed system. This silent suggestion, God didn't say he couldn't hit it. Do you follow me clear- clearly? Amen. So when God says sing, we sing, we don't play. They're two very different things. And do you know, do you know what's so amazing? All these people that love to be great historians, you know, they'll collect in their church library the post-Nicene fathers and anti-Nicene fathers. Did you know that musical instruments in a Protestant church is only 200 years old? No one would have musical instruments in their church just 200 years ago. They knew that they were popish. Even the Catholics didn't have them before 500 years ago. They were not part of New Testament worship. But we look like we're made out to be the oddballs because we're sticking with the Bible. Did Did the Old Testament ever say anywhere, don't you ever move the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart? Does it say that anywhere? What does it say? Carried on the priest's shoulders. David used this silent suggestion and thought, well, God didn't say I couldn't move it on a new ox cart. I believe David just lost track of what he was doing one day. But I know what 
one, I know one thing, that God didn't look at David and say, because you've lost track, I've lost track. God looked and said, you aren't following the due order. That's First Chronicles 15, 13. And David said, because I didn't follow the due order, God killed a man named Uzzah. Brethren, when the Bible tells us to do something, we do it exactly the way God said it. We don't add to it or take away from it. What's the cure for the perilous times of the last day? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's look at the cure. Remember this, this wonderful prophecy. It's a horrible prophecy, but it's a wonderful prophecy. It's horrible because the danger is so great. It's wonderful because we understand it and can see its fulfillment in our generation. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13 describes our generation, a form of godliness without the power thereof. It is a description of contemporary Christianity. What is the cure for it? It's the cure begins in verse 14, but continue. That means we're not going to move. We're not going to have innovations, additions, alterations, or changes. We're going to continue. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. We have learned things from God's word until he shows us something in his word to help us understand that differently in his word. We're going to stay with what we've been taught and what we've learned. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. We're only going to stick with certain things. Good ideas by good men mean nothing. We'll stand with Elihu. Great men are not always wise. Because God gives inspiration. And He gives it to us through His Word. And then Paul said, Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. We are only going to go with apostolic tradition. We don't care about any other tradition. But apostolic tradition. If there isn't an apostolic tradition for something, then we're not going to do it. Hold your finger there at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are a church that believes in tradition. But we believe in apostolic tradition. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. That's continuing. That's not moving. And hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. There's our apostolic traditions. We don't care about what anybody else thinks, not even if they're 15,000 strong in the Southern Baptist Convention. Who cares? God wouldn't care if they're 30,000 strong. That's right. Poor Elijah was one against 450 prophets of, or 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of the groves, but uh, I'll side with, Abraham, with Elijah, who was right. Amen. And there, was, there weren't any of those prophets when the day was over. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I read in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Any brother in here, any sister in here, we've practiced this for a number of years, wants to walk disorderly, not according to the New Testament scriptures, and apostolic tradition, you're out of here. We're told to do that. You're disciplined. You're put out. We're to separate from you. We are to withdraw ourselves from everyone that doesn't walk after apostolic tradition. This is the cure. 
I'm giving you the cure for what's going on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this form of godliness without the authority thereof. I'm putting the authority and teeth in it right now. If you don't do it God's way, as expressed by His apostles and His epistles, then you don't belong in the church of Jesus Christ. And you don't belong at the Lord's Supper. That's how we keep it pure, with an unleavened lump participating around that table of the Lord. Verse 14, 2 Thessalonians 3. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. In the average Southern Baptist church, what percentage of the membership shows up on any given Sunday? About 25%. What's wrong with 50% of their membership? They don't even know where they live. What they call a non-resident member is not a member of their church that they're keeping track of that lives too far away to attend. A non-resident member is someone they don't even know where he lives. They've lost complete track of him. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. See, we've got an apostolic tradition. The Apostle Paul said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So if you forsake the assembly, we don't have a choice. You give us no choice. We have to withdraw ourselves. We have to note you and not have any fellowship with you. That's how we find a cure for the perilous times of the last days. And then Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 3.15, that from a child... Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And fathers, I pray that there's going to be some children in here that from their youth have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise in a salvation. Right. Young men like Timothy that could come up where Paul could say, I have no other man like-minded like Timothy. And where was Timothy trained? In a seminary. Are you kidding? He was trained by two women who feared God. Right. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's everything a minister needs, that the man of God may be perfect. Remember that you're reading a pastoral epistle. It's Paul the Apostle to a second-generation minister called Timothy. Therefore, when you look in here, remember, it's one minister to another. And when you read the words, the man of God, that's not every male member of the church of Jesus Christ. Those are ones that God has called to be His men. His soldiers, His ministers, Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable primarily for Timothy, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Here in this third chapter, Paul has warned Timothy about a group of teachers that are going to come that have a form of godliness but deny the authority thereof. The cure for it, Timothy, is what you've always known. It's what you're mother taught you. It's what your grandmother taught you from a child. It's what I've taught you. It's what you've been assured of. And I want you to continue in it because it's able to make you perfect. Truly furnished, which is to be thoroughly furnished, which is to be perfectly, completely furnished unto all good works. You don't have to send your congregation to anyone. They don't need to go to Bill Gothard for so-called character training. They don't need to go to Clyde Naramore for marital training. A man who's got the Word of God and who's preaching it from cover to cover is going to cover everything you need to know. Right, amen. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. Now, we've got a chapter 4 stuck in there, but I want you to just keep right on reading. This is amen. the cure. I charge thee, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. The therefore is there 
because of chapter 3. Because of this horrible thing that's coming called the perilous times of the last days, I charge thee therefore. There's going to be a temptation for Timothy to wander away from these scriptures because he's going to have his congregations asking for something a little different. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. Verses 3 and 4 tell us. And so Paul says, Timothy, I charge thee. I charge thee therefore before God. Now, this is not an apostle speaking to pagans. This is an apostle speaking to his ministerial son. I charge thee, son Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Is that a sober warning? Amen. How would he get it more sober? I charge thee, therefore, before God. This is going to happen. These perilous times are going to come. The only way they can be resisted is for you to heed this charge. And every minister that's ever followed Timothy had better heed this charge. Preach the word. Don't preach their fables. Don't promote entertainment. Don't promote a personality cult. Don't promote activities. Don't promote the suggestion from silence. Don't do any of the other things. Don't follow the numbers game. Preach the word. Preach the word. Don't preach stories. Don't preach his night's illustrations. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant in season. That's a word we don't use very often. To be instant is to be insistent, to be pressing, to be urgent. Be pressing, urgent, and insistent in season, out of season. Sometimes a pastor gets in the pulpit and looks out at his people, and he knows he's out of season. That you preach on a certain subject, he's going to step on so many toes that people aren't, some of them aren't going to be happy with him. But do you know what he's told here? I charge thee before God, preach the word, be insistent anyway. Whether it's in season or out of season. Whether it's popular or not. You understand that, don't you? Certain things are in season or they're out of season. Well, preaching the word is always in season. Go for it. Preach it. Don't back off, Timothy. I charge thee. Before God. Reprove your people. Rebuke them. Exhort them with all long suffering and doctrine. And that long suffering is not putting up with their sins for five or ten years in the hope they might outgrow them. That long suffering is being thick skinned and suffering their resentment and rejection of you from time to time. But to keep right on being pressing and urgent. That's the charge. And we've read these verses. The time's going to come. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. This has happened. This prophecy has been fulfilled. We are living in the midst of it. Bible preaching is no longer acceptable. It's despised. And it's despised not only by the world, but by contemporary Christians. To have a service without musical instruments, entertainment, special music, and some flattering illustration to tell you, and just to preach the Bible is, to, is despicable. Right. It's Neanderthal. It's outdated and ridiculous. But it's biblical. Amen. Instead of contemporary Christianity, we want biblical Christianity. Right. So what does Paul tell Timothy? Watch thou in all things. Be vigilant, Timothy. Be watching what's going to happen. Endure afflictions. Don't let 
their resentment and their inability and their lack of desire to endure sound doctrine bother you, do the work of an evangelist. Ministers are to go out and take the gospel to those that haven't heard it. First Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, do the work of an evangelist, which I am more than willing to do and do whenever I have an opportunity. Make full proof of thy ministry. And how do you make full proof of thy ministry? Everything he just said. Preach the word, be insistent, be thick-skinned, don't back off, do whether it's in season or out of season, stick with the holy scriptures, which you've known from a child, continue in them, don't be moved away from them, don't give the people what they want, give them what they need, you're thoroughly furnished unto all good works, the Lord bless you and be with you, Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I am turning the torch over to you. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our position is simple. We're Bible Christians. God said it. We believe it. That settles it. We live in perilous times. A form of Christianity is here with another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. We're to recognize their religion as satanic deception. Two billion Two billion take the name of Christ and call themselves Christians. Brethren, there's something false going on somewhere in very large numbers because we don't see two billion holding to godliness and truth in this world. We're going to continue to follow the scriptures alone. The verse I began with, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. I want you, brethren, to be like the noble Bereans. They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Everything I've ever taught you is always available in print so that you're able to go look at it, take it apart, come to me, ask questions, email me questions if you don't want to face me. Leave them overnight and I'll find them in the morning. Tell me to give you two days before I respond. Whatever, Whatever you need to do, always search the scriptures to make sure that what we're teaching here lines up with the word of God. And you know the Bible tells us, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. You know what's so simple? We sing, we pray, we preach, we hear. We have the Lord's Supper. We baptize in the one baptism. We discipline our membership. We take in new members. We ordain when the Lord calls men. Isn't that simple? And we we have a New Testament church. We should be thankful for it, brethren. We're living in perilous times. I don't ever want you to forget that. Perilous times are here. Don't let yourself fall into 2 Timothy chapter 3. May the Lord bless this church to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of his word.